This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 12, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The coronavirus and related government-ordered shutdowns have put major holes in state budgets and state pensions that are unusually reliant on both the stock market and state-level tax revenue were hit especially hard. Andrew Biggs is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. We discussed how states can move forward with reforming pensions now that the reality of pension funding is so much harder to avoid. For those who uh, have been looking at their own individual 401k statements, uh, the last few months have been quite a roller coaster. Uh, they've seen big declines in stock markets uh, and you know, largely, for the most part, a pretty quick recovery. The employment picture uh, seems to also be recovering uh, pretty well, uh, improving pretty dramatically just in the last few weeks alone. Um, what has been the impact uh, of all of this roller coaster on state debt uh, and state pensions in particular? Well, a lot of that remains to be seen, and it's going to differ quite a bit um, from one state to the next based not just on how much they were affected by COVID and the recession, but also how well prepared they were to begin with. Um, the number of states have been in pretty good shape, pretty responsible with their spending. They've fixed their pension systems, which are really the big driver here. Other states, you know, your, your bad actors, your Illinois, New Jersey's, they came into this in very tough shape and it, it's, it's going to be a, a difficult year or two for them. And it's not really clear whether their political systems are capable of making the kinds of changes they need to make. And, you know, it, in March and April, when the stock market was down so tremendously, my first uh, thought was with respect to state governments trying to meet all of their various obligations without tax revenue. And then uh, on top of that, so many states are so heavily invested in the stock market and the fallback for stock market declines uh, when state pensions uh, are lagging is taxpayers. And we had sort of the twin hit of, well, we don't, the stock market's way down. So that means our pension funding levels are way down. Uh, and so the fallback is always, well, we can always tax taxpayers in order to fill up, fill in the gap. Uh, but that was at least temporarily looked like that was not going to be an option either. Do you get a sense that uh, either actuaries or state lawmakers, they're the actuaries enablers in this case, actually uh, took note of, of that situation? Yeah, well, they, they, there's this whole sort of sequence of, of, of causes and events that, that leads them to such a tough situation today. Um, you know, if you go back to the turn of the century, most of these pensions were in in, in good shape financially. The problem then is, you know, they assumed the good times to keep rolling. So most of these plans increased benefits, they, what they call a benefit enhancement. And they said, well, you know, the, these increased benefits won't cost us very much, you know, if we continue getting eight, eight and a half percent investment returns every year. The problem is since then, they haven't gotten that. They've gotten, you know, one and a half or two percentage points lower than that, which is a big hit over over 20 years. And they also have failed to make their full contributions. So, you know, if you don't contribute enough, you don't get the returns you say you're going to get, that's a real problem. What happened more recently since the Great Recession was that the, the state and local governments kind of hit a cap 
of how much they're either willing or able to contribute to these pension plans. They just said, we can't tax anymore. We can't cut other spending anymore. So the, the solution to them was let's take a ton of investment risk. So, you know, over time, public pensions has switched from safe investments like, uh, you know, bonds, and corporate paper into an, into equities, into stocks. The more recent trend, though, is shifting even away from stocks into alternative investments, real estate, private equity, hedge funds. The idea is those are going to get you higher returns. The problem is they're a lot more risky. So they've set themselves up for, for the situation we have today where we have a big drop in the market, and they, they purposely expose themselves to more and more of that. And that's just not it, – it is not a good way to run a pension system when, A, you're offering people guaranteed benefits. You're saying these benefits are going to be paid no matter what. But the second thing is most of these pension systems are older and older, meaning more and more of the people in them are retirees, fewer of them are workers. Those benefits have to be paid not just with certainty, but with certainty in the near term. And that's something like the Society of Actuaries, which is a professional body that looks at, at pensions. They have criticized openly uh, public sector pensions for the increasing amounts of investment risks they've taken. But I think the, the, the pension systems and the politicians that run them just said that was their best alternative because they felt tapped out on the amount they could contribute to these plans. But now they're in a box. So for states that have uh, found themselves in a much worse position because of you know a pretty dramatic decline in tax revenue that's going to knock a hole in state budgets uh, for, if not this year, definitely next year. Um, and for uh, the the broader fiscal picture, a lot of these states looking uh, bad and still owing these again ongoing every month. The checks have to go out. Uh, pension obligations um, are many uh, attorneys general or uh, bond the bond market more broadly looking at these states and saying to themselves, "Look, uh, if they've got to make." one obligation, is it going to be me, the bondholder, or is it going to be that guy over there holding uh, a, a contract for a pension? Well, you know, the, the economist in me likes to think that financial markets are rational and all the different players will ultimately get, get at the truth. The issue is that I, I'm not really sure that they understand where bondholders stand relative to pensioners. And I'm a member of the federal government's uh, financial oversight board uh, for Puerto Rico, where we're dealing with the bankruptcy there, that was driven in large part by the insolvency of the pensions. They simply ran the pensions into the ground. You could talk to bondholders there, and they were sure, you know, we have legal priority over the pensions. They're going to zero out these pensions if they have to, so we can get paid, you know, full faith and credit, the whole deal. The reality in Puerto Rico is that the bondholders are going to take a much bigger hit than the pensioners will. That's the same thing that happened in Detroit, um, same thing that happened in places like Stockton, California. The issue is, are the are the bond markets, are, are, are the financial markets really calculating this? If they are, then they can charge a bigger premium, you know, demand higher interest rates for bonds issued by Illinois versus, you know, Utah or something like that. You're seeing more and more of that with Illinois where they're having to pay more in interest. Um, but right now they're taking advantage of the Federal Reserve's borrowing window. So it's it's a question of how this gets resolved. Um, but the, the reality is if a place like Illinois goes under, it is, they, they, are, they will stick it to the bondholders uh, readily before they stick it to the retirees. It's just how these things work. Is there a, is, do you have a sense of how well, how responsive 
the bond market is in terms of uh, states making promises to essentially two groups of people simultaneously? In the past, I think not very responsive. And part of the problem was that they relied on the accounting statements and disclosures made by the states and by these pensions themselves. And those use accounting rules that are inconsistent with the way economists think about this, but also inconsistent with how pensions you know, in the rest of the world <laughs> work. Um, and so they would use assumptions that would make the plans look much better funded than they were. This, for a long time, I think this sort of satisfied the bond markets. More recently, the past 10 years or so, they've kind of caught on to the trick. And so a lot of them are valuing these pension liabilities in, in their own ways to try to get a more accurate picture. Just in the past couple of months, uh, the, the head of the, the president of the Senate in Illinois wrote to the state's congressional delegation and, you know, among other things, said we'd like $10 billion of federal money to bail out our state's underfunded pension systems. Since then, the interest rates demanded on uh, Illinois debt have risen. You know, the, the spread of Illinois debt versus safe investments has, has gotten larger because I think the bond markets are starting to figure out that we are not first in line to get repaid. We are, in fact, second in line. And so you have to take that pension uh, debt into account because they're going to get paid first. And and none of this conversation should disparage the fact that these pensioners, uh, you know, spent sometimes 30 plus years in a career uh, working for the state government in some capacity. They have a contract that as far as they knew was ironclad with the state to pay them a certain benefit for the rest of their lives. They made plans based on that promise uh, made by the state. So, I mean, I, I have an enormous amount of sympathy for people who went into uh, state government uh, as an employment avenue believing the promises of the state government. It's just that it's it's become so clear that a lot of these promises just weren't credible. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, uh, your, your average, you know, run-in-the-mill worker, it's, you know, the point of having a pension of the kind they have is it's a sort of a set it and forget it thing that you don't have to worry very much about it. But what you're counting on is that somebody else is worrying about it for you. Um, which means the the government should be a good steward of these plans. They should manage them. But also, to be frank, the public employee unions should be monitoring the government to make sure that these plans are being well run. I fault both the unions and the governments on this, that the governments should have been contributing much more to these pensions over the years. Um, you know, places like Illinois and New Jersey were just chronic bad actors and never making the full payments they were supposed to make. But the unions had a had a role in this as well. In the sense that if uh, if they demanded full funding these pensions using prudent conservative investment assumptions, that would have meant a lot more money going to the pension, which means less money available for things like salary increases, health care, and other benefits. So I think in a lot of times the unions gambled that okay, even if they're underfunding the pension, we're going to get paid in the end, and that may be an, in fact a, a good gamble for them. That that may pay off, but it's not good stewardship of these plans. So it's the, these state and local government pensions are not subject to the 
the regulation, the federal regulation that is applied to private sector pensions. The, if you're a private sector pension, you know, IBM or something, you offer one of these defined benefit plans to your employees, you're subject to all sorts of federal rules that are much more demanding, much more conservative in their assumptions than what state and local pensions use. And I think the assumption back in the day, back in the 70s, when they wrote this federal law and they said, we're going to apply it to private pensions, we're going to exempt state and local governments, I think the idea back then was that this, the government is not subject to the same sorts of incentives that the private firms are. You know, people would say, oh, a private firm, they're going to cheat their employees. They're going to think about the present, not about the future, so on and so forth. So we need to regulate them. As history has shown, though, this, those exact same problems happened with state and local government. They're all about what's looks good today, what is good for employees today, what is good to get me through the next election, they're much, much less concerned about the future. So the reality is, if you believe in regulating these private pensions, you probably should have done it for the state and local plans as well. What occurred to me uh, in what you just said is that this might be one of those instances where the unions and state lawmakers broadly are on the same side of everything which is the the promise the relative promise for future pensioners is inexpensive now uh and we can still do uh benefit enhancements uh for the benefit of workers and secure greater incumbency for ourselves and it's it's probably worth noting that uh unions don't get paid by former state workers if you look at the typical state and local pension and compare it to a private sector pension and let's assume they promise the exact same benefits in retirement uh, for the two plans. A state and local pension would have set aside about half as much money today as the private pensions would. Now, somebody is doing it wrong there. Either the private pensions are setting aside too much money or the state and local plans are setting aside too little. If you look around the world, you know, you could go up, look at public employee plans in other countries. They all use much more conservative, much more demanding uh, funding rules than, than the state and local governments do. The problem here was that that the the state and local governments wanted to promise generous guaranteed benefits, but they weren't willing to pay the price. They wanted to do it on the cheap. And eventually that comes back and bites you. Now is the time when it is. The the pension plans, their funding never really recovered after the Great Recession. Um, you know, during the recession there was people, you know, panicking about the pensions might trigger bankruptcies. Now mostly that didn't happen. But the pensions themselves were saying, hey, we're back on track. We don't need to be reformed. You know, we can handle it. We don't need to switch people to 401k type plans. The reality is they never really improved their financing after the Great Recession. And so they went into the COVID recession in a weak, weak position. And so, you know, some of these plans are, are, are in, in good shape, but uh, some of them took a real hit. And none of the incentives for basically any of the actors involved have changed. No, it, it, the average, I mean, he, he, this is the problem you get with the state and local pensions, the same problem you get with Social Security, the same problem you get with Medicare, is these programs with incredibly long time horizons that, that you're taking some 20-year-old employee who's paying a contribution to you, you have to make sure you're able to pay that back when he's 100 years old. So very long time horizons for the programs themselves. They're managed by people that have the time horizons of a two-year-old. You know, their their time horizon is between now and the next election. 
And anything that happens after that, they're a lot less concerned with. And so it's this mismatch. It's, you know, it's like a principal agent problem for, you know, in economist terms. But the people who are managing these plans for for employees' long-term well-being are really much more concerned about the short term. And it just doesn't work. Rahm Emanuel famously said, you don't want to let this crisis go to waste. Uh, there are opportunities now to make reforms that maybe were not possible uh, in relatively better economic times. And now we've learned that risk finds a way and that uh, a lot of uncertainty and risk has has crept in that we that almost nobody would have foreseen a lot of the problems that, that the United States has faced in the last four months. But here we are. And uh, what's the best way for states to recognize, look, we got to make these systems to the extent we're going to keep them going. They've got to be sustainable. They've got to be sustainable in a wide variety of circumstances. And uh, we've got to make sure that we can actually meet these extremely long, long-term promises that we're making to people. Well, the federal government can't force the states to reform their pensions. Um, you know, as quaint as it may seem these days, you know, the states are constitutionally sovereigns. They, you know, they have power independent of the federal government. What the federal government can do, though, is if states come looking for assistance for their pensions, they can premise that assistance on uh, the states reforming their plans. What that means is that uh, if a state like Illinois says we need ten billion dollars to keep our pensions afloat. The federal government can say, okay, maybe we'll we'll give you that money. Maybe we'll you know give you some break on your financing or whatever. But in return, you have to agree to abide by the stricter uh, pension funding rules that we apply in the private sector. That has a couple advantages. I mean, it gets them through the short term, but forces them onto a responsible uh, path for the longer term. But there's also a legal aspect. One of the things that constrains Illinois, California, a lot of these other states are legal or constitutional interpretations that basically say that the pension promise, the parameters of the pension plan cannot be changed from the first day you step foot on the job. Now, in a private sector pension, they can't default on benefits you've already earned, but they can change the rate at which you earn future benefits. That happens all the time. For state and local plans, somehow they've decided that's not allowed. What federal, uh, even voluntary federal regulation of state and local pensions would do is state or federal law preempts those state laws. So it would give the, and under federal law, you can make prospective changes to these pensions. So some sort of federal regulation, even if it's voluntary, would preempt those rules at the state level that make it so hard for them to fix their pensions. So there's both a financial and a legal angle on this that I think presents some opportunities for these states to get on top of these things. They want the flexibility, but they're just locked in at the state level in, and, and they, they can't get out of this box. So I think at least presenting some opportunity for them to do it, if they want to take it, fine. If they, if they, want, to, if they want to roll the dice on their own prospects, that's also okay. Andrew Biggs is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 